So Malachi chapter 3, starting at verse 13 and reading to chapter 4, verse 6. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. (coughs) And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Thank you, Richard. Well, today, verses 5 and 6, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we'll get to, I'm not going to cover today, we'll get to those next week as we look at John the Baptist. But today we're thinking about a day in the future that will make a difference. So looking forward to the future. Now, what I mean by looking forward to the future is not this. I saw this the other day and it really tickled me. Psychic show cancelled due to unforeseen circumstances. <laughs> Which, if they're true... Really shouldn't happen, should it? But, but not about that kind of vague, ethereal predicting of the future. What we're doing is picking up on God's solid promises about his future day um, that we find in Malachi. A day that will make a difference. A day that will make a difference to everybody and everything. Um, another example, something happens as soon as October the 31st is over in the shops, doesn't it? 
As soon as Halloween's over, you get mince pies for sale in Coles and Woolies. You get plastic green trees in Big W and Target. You've barely got over term three when suddenly, apparently, it's nearly Christmas. And when is the right time to start celebrating Christmas? In our household, it's after the pageant's been on, then the gloves are off. You can really go for it. But those shops and people like our family are doing those things, those preparations to live in light of a day that is definitely coming. Living in light of a day that is definitely coming. Uh, Christmas Day in that case. A day in the future making a difference to how life is lived today. So in this final part of Malachi, God's people are reminded to live today informed by, in light of, the fact that there is a day coming, a day that will make a difference. So here's our outline for today. Just following the passage, really. Last words, first words, final words. So it's the last words, it's the last of these kind of courtroom interactions between God and his people. God is prosecutor, making an accusation and presenting evidence against them. And then we'll hear the first words, the first positive words about God's people that we've got heard in Malachi. And finally, God's final words, looking forward to the day of the Lord. So last words, first words, final words. So let's dive in to these last words, first of all. So in Malachi, um, Malachi, we're talking about two groups of people. Um, we're going to address the first group first. The, and this is the majority of the people. This is the same group of people we've been following all through the book. And all the way through Malachi, we've had this pattern where God calls his people out on where they're going wrong. And they basically deny it. It's like when my brother, since I was not talking about Christmas, my brother, year in, year out, would sneak downstairs early and scoff every single chocolate Christmas tree decoration off the Christmas tree. Every one of them. And you'd say, you'd confront him about it, and he'd be like, what Christmas tree decorations? Didn't even know about them. And there's chocolate smeared around his face. There's bits of foil from wrappers falling out of his pajama pocket. That's what God's people are. Each time their response is, what problem? How are we in the wrong? They can't even recognize that they've gone wrong, let alone how they've gone wrong. And their problems all come from the deep underlying issue. that They're just not convinced that God loves them. They're not convinced God has got their back and that God will keep his promises. And now we come to the crunch we find out what they really think, uh, where this doubt of God's love has led them. And where doubting God leads all of us, actually. Because at the heart of sin, sin's our prideful rebellion against God. It's something we do. It's not just something that happens to us. At the heart of sin is our belief that there's something better than God, that we're better off without him. And God's people have been gossiping together about God. And God's heard what they've been saying. Verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant, blessed, certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test... They get away with it. 
It's easy to misrepresent someone, isn't it? Um, I don't know if you noticed this week, the census data started being, being released. And this was one news site's headline. The first headline they had about the census data. Churches are increasingly empty as more Australians spurn religion. Actually, the census doesn't tell us anything at all about church attendance. It only tells us about how many people are calling themselves Christian. And it is true that that number has gone down since the last census. But the headline could just have easily have been, more Australians still spurn no religion in favor of Christianity. Because there's only 39% say of no religion, 44% call themselves Christian on a census. But notice um, how God's people, now that they've decided the sheen has worn off their relationship with God, they start to misrepresent him. So verse 14, they say, going about like mourners. Now, sure, there were ways to lament and to confess sin and express repentance given in the Old Testament. And on rare occasions, it did involve looking like a mourner, you know, sackcloth and ashes and all that. But if you take their covenant law as a whole, you certainly couldn't characterize it as going about like mourners. Indeed, if you had to label it, you could reasonably call it the party celebration law. Even when you went to offer sacrifices for your sin, the priest took some of it, but the rest you got to keep and have a feast with. And there were heaps of celebrations throughout the year to remember God's goodness to them. There were parties that the whole community were required to join in with, uh, include and include any outsiders and foreigners that happened to be there. God had promised if they kept the law, the nations around them wouldn't look on them and say, oh, a bunch of miserable mourners. They'd be jealous of how good life was in Israel. So our culture likes to sell a narrative of God and his people essentially being uptight killjoys. But the truth is, God invented fun, and he wants us to have it. He created good things for us to enjoy, and he gave us the law to know how best to enjoy God's world. So actually, the reality was, if they kept God's requirements, that would minimize their going around like mourners. So don't believe the lie that God is a party pooper. But there's four words there that expose their hearts, that expose what our hearts are fixed on when we sin. What do we gain? What do we gain? See, life had become all about themselves and their relationship with God was assessed on how easy or hard it made life for them. And their assessment was that actually, not only were they worse off with God, but those who were up front and arrogant about opposing God, about, you know, actually doing evil, they seemed better off. You know, the arrogance, grass is greener and they've got better crops and livestock and more status and influence. The trouble is, if our hearts are fixed on what's in it for me, what do I gain? The answer is always going to be not enough. We'll just keep moving the goalposts, raising the expectations. Like the Israelites, 
what do I gain, makes us wonder, what have other people gained? And if it's more than we've gained, we're jealous, blinded by envy from seeing that actually they're no better off than we are. And if they have less than us, then we become proud and conceited. Our greatest gain is not clinging on to what we gain for ourselves. We are an important part of God's creation. We're made in his image. But we're not what creation is all about, what it's all for. We aren't the main character. That's Jesus. Colossians 1. The Son, of, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the most important over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus isn't a blip in history. It's what all this is all about. That's why nothing is more fulfilling, more worthwhile, more glorious than submitting your life to Jesus and submitting your will to him who gave up his life for you. Following Jesus turns the economy of what do I gain on its head. Because losing for Jesus is in reality gain. As the apostle Paul puts it in Philippians 3. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. We all know an evil, arrogant, evil, sorry, an arrogant evildoer, don't we, though? You know, people who mock the very idea of God, treat you like you're stupid for believing in God. And people who arrogantly assert, the rules don't apply to me. People who seem to think reality will change to suit them. And you know what's really annoying? That very often it does seem to revolve around them, doesn't it? Everything, they seem to get away with it. They seem to do better. Why does God let those who... Are who are obviously against him, why does God let them prosper? Well, we've got to ask, are they actually really prospering? Or are they being judged? Are they suffering God's judgment by being handed over to themselves? The trouble is, we all have at least a whiff of the evildoers about us at times, don't we? But the good news is that Jesus wasn't all about what do I gain. Jesus gave up the honor and glory due to him to take to the cross everything our sin makes due to us. Gave up the honor due to him to take to the cross everything our sin makes us due. When we turn to God in Jesus... We win forgiveness, we win right relationship with God, a return to what we're made for. So Jesus is true gain. Jesus is better. Life lived for God is better. And the evildoers are missing out and are on very flimsy ground.
So next, first words. That is the first positive words we hear about God's people. If the heart of sin is believing that there's something better than God, then the heart of saving faith is knowing God is greatest in everything. The heart of saving faith is knowing that God is greatest in everything. And in the Bible, this is known as fear of the Lord. So in this next section, we discover that there's a second group of people, God's people, that have been gossiping about God in a different way to that first group. So verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. So fearing the Lord. I've got a um, quick quiz for us about fears, about phobias. All right, see if you know these. A blutophobia. Fear of washing. Don't think anybody here's got that, don't they? All right, well, this one, globophobia. And here's a fear of, fear of, fear of the world, fear of balloons. Can you hear them creaking and squeaking and about to pop? Trichophobia. Any ideas? Fear of going bald. Yeah. It's nothing to worry about, I'm telling you. Okay. We tend to think of fears as negative things, don't we? But some fear is appropriate, isn't it? Like, like fire. Fire is a good and helpful thing, but it's also dangerous, and we need to respect its properties and treat it accordingly. Well, fearing God is knowing who God really is and treating him accordingly. Fearing God is knowing God, who God is, what he's like, his character, and treating him accordingly. So fearing God is a good, a joyful thing because it means thinking and believing and responding to God based on who he is. And God is unchangingly good. To fear God means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by the wonder and the greatness of God and his love for us. To know that every action, every step, every thought of giving of heart towards him is better than the alternative. To know God is true gain. And this group that we're looking at now, they're responding to God based on what they know is unchangeably true about him. As he's revealed to them in his promises to them, through the law, through the prophets, and just in their lived history as a nation. So the other group who are whinging, they're responding to God based on their circumstances or their enemy's circumstances, or whatever criteria is important to them that day, this other group are fearing, uh, living life based on who God is. So notice from verses 16 and 17, fearing God makes a difference. It makes a difference. God remembers it, and because of it will spare them when he comes to finally separate the righteous and the wicked. Verse 17, on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as the father has compassion, as a father com has compassion and spares his son who serves him. So notice the distinction. It isn't 
Israelites versus nations. It's not the religious versus the unreligious. It's those who fear God versus those who don't. Those who serve God and those who don't. And since Jesus came into the world, the way to fear God is to trust and believe in Jesus. Because to know Jesus is to know God. Knowing Jesus, who he is, what he's done in his death and resurrection and responding by returning, turning to him repentance and faith. That's how God wants us to fear him now. And when we do, we're freed from fearing the judgment we deserve and freed to serve God from a position of grace and salvation, not to try and win, not to try and gain. We're free to live in the light it now in the light of how great and awesome and merciful God is. So just to help us think this through, I've got two diagnostic questions. Um, I found them helpful for working out how we're going fearing God by making Jesus Lord over our life. It's working out if you really think God is your greatest gain. First one, am I willing to obey what the Bible clearly teaches, whether I like it or not? And second, am I willing to trust God with whatever he sends into my life, whether I understand it or not? So am I willing to do what the Bible says, whether I like it or not? Am I willing to trust God with what's happening to me, whether or not I understand it? God promises to work in us to help us to be able to answer yes to those questions. And he provides other Christians to help us to get there. Because we need to fear God together. We need to fear God together. Verse 16 again. Those who feared the Lord talked with each other. Talked with each other. God heard them talking with one another. They encouraged one another. They gossiped about God's goodness. And we need that. Because the moment we leave here today... Everything's against us, really. Everyone's telling us, what a load of rubbish, things are bad, God's not real. So we need each other. We're saved into Christ's body, the church. We're not meant to do this alone. Have you ever watched a movie, like, and you really enjoyed the movie, you thought it was great, but then you read a bad review about it, and it kind of spoils it for you a bit? It's like that for us with God. We're prone to forget God's goodness. We're prone to have our ideas about God distorted. So we need to help one another out by gossiping about God's goodness. When you experience God being your truest, greatest gain, tell other people about that. Share what you've learned from the Bible. Share how you're getting on making Jesus Lord of your life. Encourage one another. But why does it all matter? Whether these Israelites fear God, whether you or I fear God, if the arrogant evildoers are going to prosper anyway, is it ever going to make a difference? Well, let's have a look at God's final words, our last section. And in that, we've got words of warning and words of comfort. So first of all, words of warning. God is patient, God's compassionate, he's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. But there is a line in the sand. There is... A day in history, definitely coming, a day on the calendar when God will once and for all deal with evil and deal with it justly. 
uh, in verse 18, we saw that on this day, God will make a distinction, two groups, and only two groups. The righteous, who serve and fear God, and the wicked, who do not. The righteous and the wicked. And in 4 verse, 4 verse 1, Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will see them, will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. So the picture is one of total destruction. The arrogant evildoers, those not fearing God, are like crops cut down to stubble and then finished off by a bushfire so intense that it burns up even the roots. No last chance, no return from exile this time. The arrogant and everything they've based their arrogance on burnt up. And those who oppressed and mocked God's people will end up, verse three, 4 verse 3, like ashes trampled under their feet. This is all pretty full on, isn't it? I mean, is this literally what will happen to people on God's day? Well, what we do know is that God has chosen to describe this day in terms of the most devastating destruction and defeat and loss that his people at the time could imagine. But the important thing is, given this perspective, knowing what happens on this day that makes a difference, shows us that anything we might be arrogant about, anything we trust is a better deal than God, is actually the opposite. It's not true gain. So when God's people looked over their shoulder at the arrogant evildoers and concluded they were better off, then he also needed to look forward and take into account this day that makes a difference. Because God wants what's best for us, and that is him. So anything against him or attempting to replace him is bad for us. It's evil. And if that's what we're about, then this destruction, this fire, this judgment, is our just and fair punishment. And that's confronting, but it's also comforting in a few ways. It's comforting that justice will be done. So if you've been wronged or hurt or ripped off and they seem to have got away with it, justice will be done. So Romans 12 tells us do not take vengeance, not because there is no just deserts, but because God who is perfect can see everything and is perfectly fair. That's his job. So it's comforting because there's justice. It's comforting as we struggle in our fear of the Lord because it's often hard to live for God. It's often hard to trust that he's worth it. But his day will show things up for their true eternal worth. That the cost, that the loss, is actually the greatest gain because it's for God's glory. And it's comforting in its simplicity. Arrogant evildoer, fearing God given righteousness by Jesus. The trouble is, every one of us here, we've all been arrogant. We've all done evil. We've all hurt people. How are we going to stand and not be burned up on this day? 
This day that makes a difference will be dreadful, verse 5, but also great. And there are words of comfort. Words of comfort. God will remember those who fear him and provide righteousness for us. So 4 verse 2. For you, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. So instead of loss and destruction, total satisfaction and joy. Son of righteousness, as in S-U-N, righteousness. Uh, in Psalms and Isaiah, there's this uh, repeated image of God's mercy with the righteousness he provides like the sun's rays. So just as we receive light and heat from the sun, we receive mercy and righteousness from God. But given that we've all more than dipped our toe into the arrogant evildoer category, how is that fair? Where's the punishment that we deserve go? What happens to all our loose ends? They go to the cross. Jesus takes all our arrogance and evil doing upon himself, and he paid for it on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we trust in Jesus, what would have become of us on that day that makes a difference, that's already happened to Jesus, who chose to take it on himself on the cross. So God will definitely act on a decisive day that makes a difference. The question is, will we be ready? Who are you going to be on that day? Who's it going to be on that day? Are you going to spend your life with an eye on the arrogant evildoers, chasing gain, which will never satisfy? Or will you live in joyful, fulfilling, God-glory-giving, fear of the Lord, knowing that there's a day coming that will make a difference? Jesus is always the better offer. Jesus fills us with life and light and righteousness, with true gain. So live life in light of that day that makes a difference. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you will return on this day that makes a difference to bring justice. And thank you for your mercy and grace to us in Jesus so that we can stand on that day hidden in him, Lord, please help us not to lose that perspective. Help us to live today in light of the fact that we have true gain in Jesus and that that day is coming. Amen.